Welcome to the Write It Down podcast with the 1513 Network. I'm Brooke Murata, bringing you one-on-one interviews to challenge, inspire, and encourage. Up next is former military major, interfaith leader, author, and speaker, Jason Hawk. Jason spent over 23 years conducting defense and diplomacy missions on multinational and interagency teams. His focus was on the Middle East and Islam. He eventually went on to translate the Quran in English and shares about Muslim culture, U.S. military, and social issues on today's podcast. We chat all things religion, education, and culture. I'm super excited to share his story and his insight. So sit back, relax, and get your pens ready because this is Write It Down. Welcome back to the Write It Down podcast. I'm your host, Brooke Murata, on the line with interfaith leader, author, and professor Jason Halk. Jason, welcome to Write It Down. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I'm super excited to have you. You're also a retired major for the Army, correct? Branch of the military? Yes, U.S. Army. Wow. Well, thank you for your service, number one. Number two, I can't wait to just tap into that that mind of yours. Um, you are so educated beyond b- belief. Um, you've done a lot of Middle Eastern studies, and you spent time over in Afghanistan, correct, on a two-year stint? Yeah, spent a couple of years in Afghanistan, and I've spent uh, I've been working on Afghanistan since 2002, really. Wow. So take our listeners back to your time in Afghanistan. What what did life kind of look like those few years being over in the Middle East with boots on the ground? So, uh, yeah, I went over there in 2002. We were barely a year, not quite a year into the uh, the operation in Afghanistan. So at that point, when I got over there, still mostly chasing uh, down terrorists was the main mission. And I got quickly asked um after i helped build an airfield down on the pakistan border i was asked if if i wanted to uh work with a general that had just arrived who was going to help the afghans build their army and i was like wow that sounds interesting (laughs) so i interviewed and uh, he asked me to join him so i spent my first year helping the afghans build their army and the rest of their security sector the police their justice system you know dealing with counter narcotics demobilizing the militias and trying to get them to join the army. It was fascinating. Okay. So you were, okay. So describe this to me like more in, I guess like layman's term for me. So you were help. you went over as a U.S. army member and helped another power have an army themselves. Like how, how would you describe that? Like, how does that make sense as far as like, I'm concerned when I know that people are going over there. So the, the real there was three big pieces of the puzzle for Afghanistan. One was to go find the Al Qaeda folks behind September 11th. Mm-hmm. Two was to remove the Taliban regime, the illegal government that was there that had hosted Al Qaeda. Okay. And three was to help the Afghans build their own security ability, capabilities, so that we didn't have to stay there. Forever. Got it. So, most people in America know. Yeah, we were looking for Al Qaeda. We were killing some Taliban. It was un- really unknown and kind of quiet, the building the army piece of the puzzle, which uh, as the general I left, I-, I was working in the 82nd Airborne Division and I left General Vine's staff and he's like, Jason, you're going to the main effort now. You're going to build the Afghan army. That's how we leave. And this was 2002. Not many people were thinking that way, but, Mm-mm. you know, in his eyes and he later came back as the three star general in charge of the whole country. You know, he got that like 
we have to build their army and help them build a police force or our army has to stay here, you know, and our big NATO coalition of 40 countries has to stay here. Wow. So you have to help the other country secure itself. That is fascinating to me. This is these are just things that you don't really learn in your in your history book. At least I didn't. Or like they don't include those things. Well, I was like living during that time. But if you if you really think about it, like for someone like me who has nobody in my family, I mean, my grandpa, but nobody that I know, like a lot of like military or war stories in my brain, it's like, oh, we're just over there fighting. But there are so many moving parts um, to what you guys do. What would you say, if you're allowed to share any experiences, would be probably the most devastating experience that you saw over over in the Middle East? Uh, most devastating, probably it's, um, the ones that stick with you are watching, you know, when you see children get killed, Mm. usually accidentally. Um, I mean, the Taliban and Al Qaeda killed children on purpose, but for, for uh, the Americans and the Afghan army and police, sometimes in war, you accidentally kill children. And those are the ones that I think stick with you the most. I remember, uh, uh, we were working with the young uh, Afghan trainees, they were learning mortar fire, you know, how to use mortar um, rounds. And they were launching them into this dead space that nobody lives in. And what the children had been doing that we weren't aware of is every time the mortars got done firing, the kids would run out to pick up the scrap metal to sell the scrap metal. You know, just like a kid picking up cans on the road. Mm-hmm. And one day they were firing, doing practice, and they, they had cleared out the area, but some kids had ran in during the firing. So it's completely accidental. Wow. You know, the kids shouldn't have been there. Nobody knew they were there. And I remember having to go sit. My boss was a two-star general in charge of building their army. Um, and he and I and our chaplain went to go sit with the fathers of those boys. And they were all boys. And in Afghanistan, you know, it's it's a big, you know, your boys are your pride and joy for mm-hmm. you know, caring for your family and carrying on lineage. So sitting with those fathers and listening to them explain what their kids were like to them and how important they were. But to hear them forgive the Afghan army and the special forces guys who were training them for that mistake was pretty emotional. Like that always sticks with me. I, I could just picture those fathers mm. telling me about what their sons mean to them. And then wow. I think beyond that, for most people who've served in Afghanistan or Iraq, this is when you lose a friend mm. and you think about them every other day, every day, many times a day. Um, like that, those never leave your mind, especially if it's a good friend, somebody you really liked and trusted. So yeah. that 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 happened right at the end of my first tour, wow. losing a good buddy of mine. Uh, so, goodness, and you did two tours in Afghanistan. So how long were each of those, or did you do another? It's two, correct? Yeah, two. The first one was I went over for four months, then I extended to stay for a year to build the army, and then I got called out later uh, when General McChrystal was picked to go over there uh, and go over his his aide de camp. Uh, one of his aide de camps at a big staff. And so that was another year. Um, but I ended up working with the Afghans again closely on that one. So I shifted to helping them set up kind of the foundation of a peace process in the future. Mm-hmm. So I worked closely with the Afghans again on that tour. So is this what ignited your fascination with the Middle Eastern culture? Because you got your master's degree in um, the Middle East and South Asia. You studied as an Afghan Farsi. How do you pronounce their language? Dari or... Dari. Dari. Yeah, correct. Okay, so what created this fascination for you? Was it because you went over there for two tours, or did you kind of have it before? Uh, my first deployment 
overseas was in 1996, and it was to the United Arab Emirates. Mm-hmm. We trained. I was in the 82nd Airborne at the time in their infantry, and we went to train with the UAE Special Forces. We jumped out of planes four different times with them and you know, hung out with them for two weeks in a big training center in the desert. Um, and so I just was all around this culture, this this foreign culture to me. I grew up in a little town in Vermont before I moved to Florida. I mean, I wasn't exposed to to Islam, uh, you know, to Arab culture, uh, to those those ways and ideas. So that really that was right before I went to college to get my my commission as an officer was this short deployment to the Middle East. But it, it kind of just got me thinking. And so I started studying Arabic culture um, and Islam as a religion. And and then after September 11th, you know, dug right back into it again um, and went to Afghanistan. It got me which South Asia you know, and in the Middle East share a lot of commonalities. So Afghanistan sits you know, right on the edge of the Middle East. And, and that just kind of drew me in again to want to know more about the culture and to understand uh, everything I could about it. So what is what are some of the things that you wish everybody knew about Muslim culture? Wow. Yeah. So that's something I, I talk about a lot. Um, I've been wandering around America since I retired from the army, talking to audiences about Islam and Muslim cultures. And I like to say cultures mm-hmm. because just like any other, you know, culture in the world, it's different everywhere you go. Yeah, there there are dozens of countries that are the Muslim majority of the population is Muslim, but every country has its own culture. In Afghanistan and Pakistan, every valley has its own culture. Uh, so, I, I talk about this a lot, and I even put it, you know, I translated the Quran into English and. I kind of started out with some of the things I observed in Muslim cultures that most people don't think about. I think the first one for me is uh, the importance of forgiveness. And I saw it demonstrated many, many, many times just that God gets to decide, you know, punishments in the end. For the majority of Muslims, forgiveness is really, really important. And I and I don't I don't lump in, you know, these fools like the Taliban and ISIS and Al Qaeda that. They left Islam a long time ago, mm-hmm. <laughs> and most Muslims will tell you that you know, those jokers don't count. They're, they're extremists who want to kill people. Like, yeah, that's not. I don't know what religion you're in if you think that's part of your religion. So mm-hmm. I think forgiveness being a critical piece uh, of the puzzle. I think value of education. Mm-hmm. There's a huge value put on education, and, and that's and something people might not always think. You know, if you. Uh, if you dig back into most words in our la- English language or the Latin languages, you're going to find some Arabic in there. You know, if you dig through math, you're going to find a lot of um, Arabic and uh, Persian culture in the background of all the math that we know. So I think that education and forgiveness are two big ones to me that pop out. People don't think about that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because in our minds, I mean, at least I know for me being guilty of this is it's easy in any religion or any culture to just lump in the worst as their poster children of like a culture. And so when you say, you know, forgiveness and education, you know, for certain people, it could be in anything, but you'll, you say Muslim culture, it could trigger somebody to think of those radicals. Like you were talking about, you think of Christian culture, you can think about the people on the side of the road with the Turner burn signs. Like our minds kind of just want to jump to, the worst case scenario when we hear 
you know, something that's not as familiar to us. So thank you for sharing um, what they really believe in of just forgiveness and education and, and fashioning a culture that seems from what I gather and even researching some of the stuff you've di- you've done is the craving peace. Would I be wrong for saying that, that that there is a, a craving for peace in that culture? Absolutely. I mean, it, it is that that is the, the main goal for almost every Muslim I've ever met. And again, I, I throw out the, the the folks who call themselves Muslims, but you know, are, have, don't believe in any of the tenets mm-hmm. uh, that are inside the Quran. They want to live in peace, and that's it's no different than any almost every country I've ever been to, whatever the religion is. People want to mm-hmm. go about their daily lives, take care of their families, make sure their kids do better than they did, and live in safety and security. So. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, that, that is a normal human thing, no matter what religion you are. Yeah. Well, and speaking of peace, what what would you say? Like, could you describe um, what a what a peace treaty is and traditionally how that comes about when you're in war? I mean, I've studied about it, but from somebody who has served our country, when you reach a, a term of peace with another country, what does that look like and how do you get there? Yeah, that's a sh- you got a couple minutes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Take it away. Let's, let's, you teach me. You're, you've written like two books, I'm sure more, and you're you know how to speak. So lay it on us. Yeah, that that somehow became a big piece of my career in the army. So I came into the infantry, mm-hmm. and then I w- became a combat engineer, and we were blowing stuff up or building things. And then I became a foreign area officer, and I started working on diplomacy and intelligence and defense cooperation missions which most soldiers, you don't think of doing that, but there's about a thousand FAOs in the army who do that. And so I was part of that cadre and that brought me into what you might call conflict resolution uh, or peace building. Uh, and and that was that was my big focus with Afghanistan and still really is. I, I stayed with that portfolio after I left Afghanistan and in my retirement and as a scholar, um, as an academic, I've been working on it continuously and talking to Afghans and talking to the U.S. government. Really, the first thing you have to do, there there has to be a state of war to have a a need for a state of peace. Right. Uh, Afghanistan has been in a state of war for 40 years. So there there has to be a drive for one party or the other to want peace. And for Afghanistan, the Afghan people definitely were ready for peace when we got there. They in 2001, they're like, we want no more wars forever. (laughs) <laughs> let's figure out how to be, make peace. And they came together and put together their own government, put together a constitution, set up uh, a new system that protected human rights. Uh, but the Taliban didn't want peace. They went back to Pakistan where their money came from and their support, and where their leaders lived and their safe havens and figured out how to make the war heat up again. And steadily over those years between 2001 and 2008, just, they ramped up the anger and the violence. Um, and so you had, you've got two sides. One would like to have peace. Uh, mm-hmm. The other doesn't. So you have to, you will keep fighting until both sides agree that maybe there's no way to fight this out. We've reached a stalemate, you know, two great boxers in a ring eventually go, I'm not going to knock this guy out. So we're going to have to call it a draw and go to a peace conference and go to have peace talks and negotiate over what the, the future will look like so mm-hmm. just for afghanistan for example you know it took us in 2009 we started reaching out to the taliban and the afghan government started reaching out to the taliban 
And Pakistan wanted nothing to do with any Taliban going to have peace talks or talking about peace because there's a whole long story of Pakistan's relationship with Afghanistan. It's not good. Mm. Uh, so the, the Taliban weren't able to start talking peace. Uh, we found out later that there were some secret talks that you saw in The New York Times under the Obama administration. But those kind of died out by 2014 or 15. Still didn't really go anywhere. The Taliban weren't serious yet about peace. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until 2020 uh, that the Taliban actually agreed with America, hey, we'll find a way to not shoot each other. Hmm. Um, part of that deal will be that the Taliban has to sit down with the Afghan government and find a way not to shoot each other. And so February 2020, the U.S. and the Taliban sign an agreement that says we won't shoot each other. And, and it was think September of 2020, the Taliban finally sat in a room with the Afghan government to talk about it. Wow. Now, they didn't they didn't agree to peace. They didn't even start a ceasefire. They, they kept fighting. And actually, the Taliban have spent 18 months even being more brutal and uh, diabolical in how they kill hmm. uh, women and children. But you got them in the room. So that's the first step. You have to yeah. get two people in a room Does- uh, after that. You have to build trust. And that hasn't happened yet. The Taliban have just wanted to keep fighting. So we're in the the trust building phase now. And this could go for decades. Do you think that you mentioned 2020? Did that have anything to do with Corona? Do you think that finally got or not really? Is that not like that big? No, actually, I was at a conference right before COVID broke open. And we were talking with the Afghan military and the Pakistani military. and, And we had some very frank discussions about the need to have peace talks. And it was it was literally a couple of days before the Doha and the Kabul agreements were announced, which was these two sets of documents that laid out how we would get to Afghan peace talks. And so COVID it was really not anybody's mirror. All that time we were building up to it, hmm. COVID wasn't, it, it broke right afterwards. Okay. And so, so what exactly are they fighting for? I mean, is it just these, these radical... I mean, Taliban just wanting to be evil? Are they fighting for something? Are they fighting for ownership? Like, who are the allies? What's what's kind of like the, the, the lay of the land over in the Middle East? Okay, so we're right on the edge of the Middle East here. We'll call it South Asia, as most people refer to where Afghanistan sits. Mm-hmm. Pakistan, when Pakistan was born as a country, when India split apart and you got two countries in the 1940s, Pakistan was born. Afghanistan had been there as a country, as a kingdom, uh, really since before America was founded. But around the 1770s, Afghanistan kind of became a nation as well uh, in a different setting. So you had an older Afghanistan and a brand new Pakistan. Those two did not get along because part of Pakistan's land used to belong to Afghanistan. Mm. So you had this instant animosity that Afghans are saying, well, Pakistan's not a real country. Pakistan saying, you'll never get your lands back. They were given away during the deal. Uh, you know, you made with the British, forget it. So there's just been this tension for 50 years over where the border is between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And oh for Pakistan, that's an like that's the threat of all threats for Pakistan. Because if you cut off the old Afghan lands from Pakistan, Pakistan would be two inches wide on a map. You know, they mm-hmm. could they'd be just this teeny tiny country. Mm-hmm. Um sitting next to India, their arch enemy, uh, and they would feel vulnerable. So the Afghans really never, by never uh, recognizing that international border between the two countries, they've put Pakistan into this very paranoid mindset. 
that we must control Afghanistan. They have fewer people, uh, but they're those you know crazy Afghan people, and, and they're always going to war. They're always being invaded in reality. But uh, for Pakistan, they just got this mindset. It's very uh, paranoid about Afghans and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And so enter the Soviet Union a little before your time. But when your mom and I were in high school, the Soviet Union goes into Afghanistan to try to make it a communist nation. And we side, America sides with Pakistan to push the Soviets out, height of the Cold War. So here's our chance to fight the Soviets through Pakistan. And we support a bunch of what are called historically the Mujahideen or warriors for God. Um, There were seven big factions. The Taliban didn't exist yet. Um, These seven factions kind of forced the Soviets out eventually and took over the government of Afghanistan and and created this um, temporary government of all these warring factions. Uh, And then America left. We were like, good luck with that, Pakistan. Good luck, Afghanistan. We're out of here. We cut off all the funding. Uh, If you watch the movie Charlie Wilson's War, you'll understand that piece of history. Um, Mm -hmm. So Afghanistan goes into a civil war. And Pakistan's sitting next door and go, well, we don't like the idea of a civil war in, in Afghanistan. Somebody might get in charge of that country who will be against us. We don't want a angry Afghanistan. So they create, well, they find this little teeny tiny Taliban group in Kandahar area down south, and they get behind that. The, the uh, Pakistani intelligence section of their army gets behind the Taliban and mushrooms them into this big organization, floods them with weapons, cars, money. A couple other countries help them, too. Mm-hmm. And they kind of take over 80 percent of the country and throw out the old Mujahideen um, who we used to support. And then the Taliban allowed Al Qaeda to wander in because uh, Osama bin Laden was hanging around during the Soviet uh, Mujahideen war era. So the Taliban let Al Qaeda in and then we come to throw them all out after September 11th. Al Qaeda, we, we kind of decimate. Bin Laden runs off to Pakistan to hang out next to their West Point. Mm-hmm. So that tells you where Pakistan is on Al Qaeda. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we throw the Taliban. Some of them leave, some of them hide, but they reconstitute and they want to throw America out. And Pakistan wants to support them still because they want that. They'd rather have the Taliban in charge, they think, than a American friendly government under President Karzai and the Afghan government's first government. So that starts this path of the Taliban wanting to take the country back over just like they had done before. So it was really about power. It wasn't, you know, they claimed to be about religion and made up all these stories about how there's a religious background. Mm-hmm. The, the Taliban even tried to call themselves religious warriors or Mujahideen, but it was just straight power play. They wanted to be in charge of the government again. And so that's mm-hmm. what's been going on for you know nearly two decades. Wow. And numbers wise, how many, how many like soldiers are there within like Taliban and within our our military, like numbers wise, what does that look like? Boots on the ground. At one point, America and the big NATO coalition that was with us had over 100,000 people in the country. The Afghan military and police is now up to around 300,000. And the Taliban at any given point was maybe, you know, we we don't really know. They don't wear uniform. So we we estimate somewhere between 20 to 60,000 Taliban roaming around. I was, I was telling a friend this morning, um, it's it's easy to be an insurgent force. If you don't have to run the country, 
60,000 people can cause a lot of trouble in a place the size of Texas. Mm -hmm. You know, if every criminal in Texas got up today and said, I'm going to rob a bank and kill somebody, Texas would look overwhelmed. They don't have enough police to stop every criminal. So Texas would look weak and look like they're overwhelmed and like they don't have good police. They don't have good Texas Rangers. But it's not the reality that anybody can do that. That's the, the bonus of being an insurgent in a war. You always look like you're powerful and big, but in reality, you're just kind of running around robbing banks and killing people. You're not trying to run anything. So you you can cause a lot of trouble and cause a lot of headaches. Yeah. So what um, I know it's a little further east, but what what role does Israel play in all of this? Uh, nothing really with Afghanistan mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, purposely they're never part of any coalition operating in mm-hmm. Afghanistan or Iraq or or in the Horn of Africa or any of the other places we were working in. You know, Israel doesn't uh, join in in those coalitions, uh, even though they're a big ally of the U.S. You know, that's purposeful. That They catch a lot of heat uh, already in their region. Mm-hmm. No, re- no reason to ramp up that heat. Right. So, yeah, not really a, a piece of the puzzle. During the Soviet, anti-Soviet period, we were working, if you watch Charlie Wilson's war, you can kind of see the, the, the known secrets about Israel's role in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in modern times, no, nothing. So what would be the easiest way to, to counter terrorism? Again, I'm going to take a couple seconds here. Uh, <laughs> I am so inquisitive. I guess that's good. I'm asking questions because that's the no, point that's of a podcast. But I, I'm like yeah, soaking I, this all in. I feel like you're painting such a good visual for me. So, awesome. Well, that's good. Yeah. I, I, I try to... I, my my mo- my model as a teacher is to take something complicated, explain it in a way that anybody can understand it, and mm-hmm. don't use twenty five cent words. Yeah, you know, you're I doing could, a great job. <laughs> nothing puts me to sleep faster when I was working on my master's degree than a professor who used big words and never got anywhere. Right. Uh, Thank you. Break it down. You know, don't, my best economics teacher could break it down. I could understand economics with words and not math. It was great. I so, had the worst economics teacher. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, our, our right. teacher actually let us take our um, our exams with words or math, whichever what? way we could best express economics. It was amazing. Man, I'm uh, jealous. He wrote a book. I would highly uh, recommend it. Robert Looney out at uh, California. Wow. So, Love it. How do you counter terrorism? I yeah. spent a lot of time thinking about this, as you can imagine. And uh, uh, during the uh, Trump transition into the White House, I-, I worked a little bit thinking about how that might look. Uh, what we would change in the counterterrorism strategy and, and worked with the folks that were writing that. And so I have thought about it a lot. And for me, and, and that was the big shift that we put into it, uh, was you have to get to the ideology. Mm-hmm. If you don't know why the terrorist is committing terrorism and what they really believe, and if you can't understand it, they will. you'll never stop them. You can't run around the world and shoot every terrorist in the head. Right. And assume that you got, you got them all and there'll never be another one. It doesn't work that way. You have to win. You have to know why they're doing it. What's their ideology? And then you have to counter that ideology with facts. You literally have to communicate more with the people they're trying to recruit. Because if you don't stop the recruiting cycle, you'll never stop a terrorist group. It will keep recruiting and keep recruiting because you're never working on the reasons why. What motivates somebody to join ISIS? Um, if you don't go in there and counter those ideas with more ideas, with better ideas, they will keep recruiting. Yeah. So there, a great way to look at 
the big shift, and I've gone back to Richard Nixon's office and looked at all the counterterrorism strategies that America has ever had, and it's really just been added to every cycle. They don't change much. They've been added to. If you look at the Trump speech that he gave in Saudi Arabia in May of 2017, he highlighted the new counterterrorism idea, and it was to talk about the ideology. Read the speech he gave in Saudi Arabia to, I think it was 50 or 55 different Muslim nation leaders sitting there in Saudi Arabia, and he gave a speech, and it all—it was all about, let's get to the ideas. Why do people join terrorist groups? Whatever they are, we have to get to those ideas and counter them. And America can't do that. If they're joining ISIS because they think it's a great Muslim thing to do, who is America to say that's a bad Muslim thing to do? You know, his the, the gist of that speech was Muslims have got to talk other Muslims out of joining ISIS. Non-Muslims can't do it because we can't have that conversation. Right. It just it falls on deaf ears. So mm-hmm. for me, it's all about you have to keep hunting terrorists. You have to keep finding them, you know, or else they'll burn every country down. But mm-hmm. you, you have to do the long term work, which is understand the ideologies behind it, whether it's white supremacy or religion or black supremacy or you name it. There's a million ideas for why people commit terrorism. Know what it is and stop their recruiting by countering the ideas. We're going to take a quick break to discuss Write It Down's brand new website. You can head over to widpod.com, W-I-D-P-O-D.com and see all the goods. You'll notice a banner at the top of the page that says learn more. If you click that link, it'll show you how you can support Write It Down. P.S. My favorite part about the website is the Wid Wall, which is a collection of all the Write It Downs from the show. This podcast is made possible by the 1513 Network. So show the network some love and support by listening to their other shows. If not, just stick with Write It Down because I'm the coolest, the realest, the illest. Now, back to the show. So would you say the main, uh, at least the way that I perceived it, maybe this is wrong, which you can enlighten me, is the main um, thing that incentivizes people to join these like radical terrorist groups is religion. Is that true or false? In modern times, religion is the, the crutch that they use. That's what they'll... They'll twist some religious ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, it it's usually comes down to power in the end, but they mask it with a religious reason. Mm-hmm. But it is really about political power. I mean, terrorism, by definition, has to be an attempt to change the political power. That's what makes it terrorism, to terrorize, to change uh, politics and to change the way society runs. Yeah. So even in Northern Ireland, where you had the Protestants and the Catholics were really the two sides of the issue. It wasn't really religion. Right. Uh, it was about power. It's about who's going to be in charge. Uh, if you go down to Colombia, uh, that was about power. You know, they're all Catholics, but that was about who was in charge uh, of that country. So religions sometimes get used as the mask for the reason why, mm-hmm. but it is usually almost always about power. Yeah. Um, Sri Lanka is another place. It's about who wants to be in charge in the end, That's but they'll use true. whatever they want as uh, to manipulate. a reason to do it. So how would you say if you were to describe all of that same those principles of power, manipulation, recruiting people to do things um, in, in the name of religion or whatever, how would you describe that going on in our own country? Yeah, does it remind you of anything? Because <laughs> I've been describing this, you know, this is international terrorism, but you know, when it comes to domestic terrorism, it's the same thing. Anybody... 
that's trying to radicalize people into violently changing the government, you know, they're using the same techniques. I mean, yeah. This is all about you got to give them some idea whether Tactic. they're anti-fascists or, you know, white supremacists or uh, communists, you name it. We've had a lot of different domestic terrorism, you know, uh, some are against homosexuality. There's a million reasons to do terrorism, but um, it, it's always the same steps. I want to change that. I'm going to use terrorist violence to really terrorize the citizens into changing to my point of view, whether it's anti-abortion clinic bombings, you know, you name it. We've had people commit terrorist acts for many, many ideas and reasons. Mm -hmm. It's the same mm -hmm. technique. Even a, I equated a lot to, and I, I worked in some some counter gang mentoring in uh, California. I, I was looking at the the gangs in California and, and seeing how they do the same thing. It's mm -hmm. you find young people, you brainwash them into your ideology, uh, you make them commit violence so that you own them. You make them kill somebody or shoot somebody, and then they're kind of brainwashed into your gang, mm -hmm. and, and you commit terrorism on your town or your city. You terrorize them into letting you sell drugs and recruit their kids uh, and, you know, run prostitution and human trafficking rings, you terrorize them and there's not enough police to stop you. Um, and the citizens are terrorized. They won't fight back against the gang that's really entrenched. Hmm. Uh, the mafias were like that, you know, in Chicago and New York and New Jersey. It's that same thing. It, it's just whether it's at a domestic state, local level or an international level, it's about trapping somebody into your gang, into your organization of violence and recruiting more constantly by selling whatever idea you're selling. Hmm. This statement that I'm about to say, I, I want I want your opinion on it, if it's true or false. And if you believe it's false, maybe describe to me the difference between the two. But the only difference between socialism and communism is force. Would you say that's true or false? Um, I think both use force. I think when you get to a state of communism, you know, socialism's plan is to, you know, destroy the free market, shift to socialism, be a perfect utopia in communism. And that's when all the government power is shifted to the government. Uh -huh. you know, there's there's no more freedom left. There's no more power of the people anywhere. It's all sitting in the hands of a few. So to me, you know, socialism is just a bridge. There's a lot of things happening in that time period. Uh, but when you get to full blown communism, which they still call themselves socialists, but that's supposed to be the perfect period where, you know, the the uh, elites control everything for the people, but somehow the elites get rich and the people get hungry. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it, that's to me, that's kind of how I see it. it. There's more course of power, I guess. Once you're communist, you usually have you control every bit of the power to um, force people to do things. There, there's no resistance left and no one can resist you. So. Wow. And all that does is just squeeze freedom out, which everybody wants to be free. Um, and so this just like, wow, I'm just taking a second to process this. Normally I have like questions coming out the wazoo, but this is so fascinating to me um, to number one, even hear your, your take on that, that difference of socialism, and communism, because when I, when I see the way that our world is going, it just seems like everything is becoming centralized. Would you agree with that? Yeah, there's a lot of countries out there. You know, communism isn't the only way that fascism will also get you to a centralized government, as we know, with the Nazi regime, mm. um, kleptocracies, you know, places like 
you know, Putin's Russia, where, you know, all the powers in the hand of, you know, him and a few oligarchs, a couple of wealthy friends and they, everybody else is pretty powerless. So it scares me. I don't like governments that are all powerful. You know, no. I, I, I talk with Afghans about that all the time. Hey, you, you don't want your president to be all powerful. Mm-mm. You want your legislature to have power. You want your provinces, your states to have power. The more you share power, the more likely that human rights are protected and it's truly democratic. You know, so if you're going to build a republic, share the power. Don't centralize it. No matter wh- how you run your country or what model you say you run, mm-hmm. the more power that gets shifted to the central government and to one person, I think the more it endangers human rights. Mm-hmm. Would you say, um, and just from from your world and your perspective, um, I'm a 25 year old, not never seen the things that you've seen and don't have the knowledge that you have. So I can only have what I read on social media or the news. Would you say that Trump's administration helped the military or didn't? Um, it's hard to say that any administration helps the military. The okay. military kind of just does its thing. Okay. Um, the, uh, the president's office, the executive branch, they can help or hinder the military because they they're the commander in chief of it. Right. Uh, if they get too involved in what the military is doing or they don't pay enough attention, there's a happy medium there of how much they should be putting their fingers into what the military is doing. And then Congress has its own role with the military. They fund it. So whether they give it more money or less money, that can change how it does, how it doesn't. So I, I don't think that he helps or hurt the military. I think the military is what it is. Okay. It's actually pretty hard to to hurt the military. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can hurt the relationship between a president and the military. Um, if, if you're too involved or you're not involved enough or if you are disrespectful towards each other, because the military works for the civilian government. You know, that's very special to America. Mm-hmm. That's what makes our military so good. But with, if, the, if the president says do this, the military will do it. Right. There's never a moment where a general stands up and goes, no, we're not doing that. In other countries, you know, the generals can walk in and really throw their weight around. In Pakistan, they pretty much run the country, yeah. which we see is not good. Pakistan supports a lot of, I think there's 20 terrorist groups in Pakistan right now. You, know, you don't want your army to run your country. That's bad. So um, I think that's what a president or even Congress can really do. If they get too antagonistic towards each other, that's not healthy. Mm-hmm. It can break the bonds that, that make us special, that that we know the military will always be respected uh, by the government and the people and respectful of the government and the people. That's important. If we, if we lose that, yeah. and it frustrates me. I see a lot of military folks now really speaking out against different citizens, against the media, against politicians, against elected officials. I think that's the military hurting itself. Yeah, stay in your that lane. That is not a healthy thing to do. No. It's, it's not your job. Your mission is to go fight right. our nation's enemies, not pick a fight with some politician you don't like or some press member you don't like. Right. You know, rise above it. Be, be professional. Do your job. That's that's your job when you're in, in uniform. I'm out of uniform. I can say a little bit more. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I still don't try to pick a fight with, you know, right. <laughs> everybody that I meet. Do it you, doesn't look good for the military. No. Do you think America will preserve that model of having the military more separate? I do. I think it's it is the cornerstone of our military situation. I think there will always be people in the military that will bring it back to the proper balance. Uh, and that there's it's there's you know, there's like 
40 generals or something. Yeah, I don't know how many generals are in the army these days, but you know, there's only a, a dozens of them. It's it's a million person organization, you know, two million with the reserve and the guard. You know, and active duty is like 500,000 folks. So you've got a lot of people in there who believe, as I just stated, the military needs to be professional, listen to civilians, be respectful, do your job. Yeah. Um, and that's the majority of the military. So it, a few generals or a few privates or a few lieutenants are not going to ruin that for the military by, you know, breaking uh, the confines of their their professional conduct. Hmm. Well, that's good. I mean, I, I mean, just learn, I'm sitting here like learning, I'm tr- like trying to picture, you know, each, each branch of the military and then what you described over in um, South Asia and the Middle East and just kind of see like all the moving parts. Because like I said, I'm 25, I can read it in history books, I could read or watch the news, but you're someone that has like not only the lay of the land, but you've studied the culture, you know about the U.S. military and the ins and outs of that. So the way that you just described all of that and how the moving parts with our government, it's a lot more, I think, effective for people my age to, to hear from you than, let's say, our Twitter feed. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, but I kind of want to segue into your books. You wrote... Um, you translated the Quran, um, a chronological modern English interpretation. So what what made you really want to do that? And then what are some of the things that, that you took away from that journey as you translated the Quran? So I started right after I retired in 2015. I, I saw a need um, in time period. That's before the Trump administration. I saw a need in America um, to have discussions about Islam and Muslim cultures, because there were a lot of misconceptions. And I had spent my whole career working with Muslims in their countries or in America, you know, people on my team. And I was like, wow, we really don't understand this. So I just went on this nationwide journey <laughs> to have discussions about it, wow. which took me literally, you know, to New Mexico, to Michigan, to Florida, New Jersey, and everywhere in between. It was quite a wandering. Right. And I, along the way, I, the biggest question I got was, well, does the Quran say this? Does the Quran say that? I, I, I heard the Quran says this. And I had read the Quran many times, but I don't I didn't, haven't memorized it. You know, I haven't memorized the Bible. I've read that many times. So I decided if I'm going to be good at explaining this, I need to really go in uh, and put it in my own words. Modern English. What does it say? Um, and so I started translating the book and interpreting and I put it in chronological order because it's a 23-year story. So I put it in that 23-year sequence because it's usually published out of order, which is hard to get your head around. I wanted to get that chronological story out there. And I wasn't going to publish it as a book. I was literally just going to put it in a PDF and send it to my friends who wanted to know about Islam. And a, a book publisher came to me that was working with a friend of mine and said, that's a unique book. I want to publish that. So we did it through his press up in Kentucky, Old Stone Press. And started selling it. And mm. that became kind of a textbook when I taught classes. Uh, I would take it with me when I'd go have talks. So people, if they wanted to read it themselves. My big thing is uh, what I probably took away from it. Most people think they know what's in the Quran and they don't. Mm. And I, I, when I say most people, I mean Muslims too. I've met so many Muslims <laughs> in my time period that think something is in the Quran, but it's not. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just some cultural thing they have done in their country or their family. Right. But it's not Quranic. It's not actually in the, the Quran. And, and I've met lots of Christians who mm-hmm. tell me that I have to do this because it's in the Bible and it's not in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So 
that was probably the biggest takeaway for me. Yeah. We all how little, it. how many stereotypes or misperceptions there were about what was in there and what wasn't. Um, the other big takeaway, and I was looking for this as I was going through it, uh, was the number of times it talks about the word jihad or jihad. You know, people throw that word around. Most people don't know what it means. Um, but I wanted to do- really document in the book. It's the only notes I put in the book was whether a word actually in English was a word for jihad or not, because there's a confusion. Jihad means to struggle. It doesn't mean war. It doesn't mean murder. It doesn't mean uh, violence or battle. It means to struggle. That's the verb, J-H-D, those sounds in Arabic. That's what that means. So I was really going through it with a fine-tooth comb and identifying that. So I made an index in the back of the book to help people go in and find specific things. Uh, and it was, I think it was maybe a dozen times it shows up in the Quran. Mm-hmm. And it is talk, very, very seldom is it talking about war. It's talking about your struggle to be a better Muslim. Just to remember those, what would Jesus do bracelets yeah. that a lot of people wear? You know, that's, that was really like a jihad bracelet. It, it was your struggle to be a better Christian, right? Mm-hmm. It's that internal Muslim, yeah, like, dialogue. Yeah. yeah, internally, yeah. Mm-hmm. So most Muslims every day w- will ask themselves, "What would Muhammad do as the prophet for Islam? You know, what what would he do? What's the right thing to do?" And so, that that's kind of something I equate to help people understand it. What that word means. So, yeah. when was the the original Quran um, like written in respect to like the Bible? Because I know the Bible was kind of was put together later. Um, collecting, you know, the the Torah and then the new the New Testament letters. So, when when's the time frame? If you if you know yeah, it, that's a good one. I, I don't have all the numbers in front of me, but I know right. it's roughly about twenty years um, after the death of Muhammad, who's the prophet of Islam. So, uh, there's fourteen hundred years of Christianity, and then Islam is is created, uh, is is born, is is announced to the to the Arabic people in around Mecca. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's Muhammad doing that. He's explaining this. He is giving the exact word of God, as he's told by the angel Gabriel. Um, he's giving the exact words of God to the people who want to listen to him. It takes him a while to build up followers, as we know of any prophet, if you've read the Bible, any. Um, he finally builds up enough followers for it to really be a religion mm-hmm. um, that people accept and acknowledge. Um, and 20, 20 years after he dies... All of those recitations, all those, I'll say, um, all the sermons, it's probably the best way to think about it. You know, when he delivered, it was all oral. He didn't have anything written down himself. He was, he couldn't read or write. So he would hear, hear the words from the angel Gabriel and he would give those words of God to his followers. But people were writing it down during his lifetime. So he preached, you know, he's explaining these words of God for, you know, 20, 25 years. I forget how long he was alive. And 20 years after he's dead, they're all collated into one book, um, a first edition, and then a second edition, a final edition came out um, within 20 years of his death. So the guy who's actually delivering these words of God is only 20 years gone when the book is published in its final form, which is really fast for religions. And that's, a, that's a very short time period. So people were still alive that had heard Muhammad say these words. So it was easy to kind of fact check and make sure that you had all the words correctly before you published it as a final draft. Wow. I'm just like blown away. Okay. And so my next question would be how, so why do you think 
let me put it this way. I'm trying to be cognizant of my words. Do you believe that it's, it's mimic, it mimics the Bible or do you think for your own, like in the way that you view this, that it goes along with it? So just, I'll give you the Muslim perspective of it. Okay. You know, I, I try not to give my opinion on religions because everybody's got one. Right. Uh, but the Muslim perspective of Islam as religion is that Judaism uh, was the foundational, you know, religion of worshiping one God, that Abrahamic religion, that Christianity was the next phase, um, and that Jesus was a prophet, but not the son of God, okay. is the Muslim point of view. And then the angel Gabriel comes down on God's orders and anoints Muhammad, a prophet, to explain the next phase of monotheistic Abrahamic religion. Hmm. And and he, Muhammad is told he is the final prophet. Uh, that's part of Islam's belief. So they, they believe that Judaism follows the holy words of God, that Christianity follows it, and that Islam is the final chapter of that story of the Abrahamic religion. Wow. Which in my, like the way that I look at this too, is that then why the heck are we all fighting then? Like, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm just saying. I'm with you. <laughs> look, my, my public opinion is I follow Jesus Christ. People know that about me. I believe that he is the final son. I think mean, believe he's the son of God. I believe he died on the cross, rose again for my sins. So that's just not going to change. But when I look at this, if there's so many different floating perspectives in the religion in the Middle East, then that that should. But that's the point, though, is that it can't all be correct because nobody is coming to a terms of peace and we're all still fighting each other. Maybe I don't know. This is just my 25 year old off the cuff learning kind of the different perspectives like you're sharing um, with your book. But this is just, wow, this is really deep. I didn't realize we'd be going this deep on a Sunday afternoon, but <laughs> wow. You should listen to my podcast. Oh, wow. <laughs> my... I don't tape anymore, but if you get in there, I mean, we have these conversations with, like my host was Catholic, I'm a Baptist, and we would have Muslims on, or people who used to be Muslim, and have these discussions about religion. It was, it was pretty fascinating. I, I enjoy this. Um, I, I think I heard a nugget in there, though, what you said that I, I think sits at the at the crux of this. If we if you say the the Holy Lands, you know, you've got mm -hmm. Christians, Jews, and Muslims all right there in the same you know space, smaller than Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. um, why can't they get along, right? If they're all in the same Abrahamic religion, and that, you're right, not everybody agrees that it's all the same Abrahamic religion, so that's a problem. But step two is goes back to why terrorists commit terrorism. There's a million ideas why people commit violence. Mm -hmm. Most of those people are not, they don't hate or want to kill another person because they truly want to turn them towards their religion. Mm -hmm. I mean, if that was the case, they would all be out there trying to persuade somebody to join their religion. Instead, they're committing violence because they want power. Mm -hmm. it's, it's always about power. power. Man. They want to control their lives, their government. They don't like their situation. Mm -hmm. So they're angry at somebody else. And religion's a great way to mask your your uh, your search for power, your quest for power. Oh yeah. Well, it's a religious reason. We're we're fighting because religion. You know, of course, we're fighting. They're they're, not, they're the wrong kind of Muslim, or they're the wrong kind of Christian. Yeah, it's something you said earlier when we were talking about socialism, and when we were just talking about 
resting power in the hands of the few kind of like this uh, like I don't remember at what point we were talking about whether socialism or communism but my brain as a Christian went straight to the Pharisees and how they were the religious leaders at the time and they had all the power to kind of you know deem a Jew worthy or not if they were keeping up with the law you know and then Jesus comes along and is like I'm the only way, like I'm the only way to the father. I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. So that's what I believe. And I, and it's the truth. So when you, when you kind of see all of this, whether it's within the government or other religions or in war, it's like, it, it really can't be both. It can't be power in the hands of a few that dictate what you get to do. If you are upkeeping a certain set of rules or laws, or if you're using you know, whatever motive you're using to try to get somebody to do something that it's called manipulation. And that is exactly what car salesmen do to young girls who are in there without their dad and don't know <laughs> which car to buy. I mean, it's this form of, um, kind of, it's the same thing. Maybe, I mean, I'm just rambling, but it's kind of the same thing. I feel like with, with COVID is it isolates you. It instills fear in you. And then we are all just, seeking for somebody to tell us what's next and what what to do which is stripping people from their freedom so i don't know i just that's me on my soapbox i don't even know if that even all made sense but my mind is just blown i think it does i think it's i was teaching american government and international relations to to college freshmen and sophomores and i loved having that discussion with them because everybody comes in with their own belief system that their parents have taught them about politics and government before they get to college and and I loved having those raw conversations. I would look, I'd like try to draw out on the board, like what are the real positions of the political parties? Tell me where they are. Do they want more power? Do they want more freedom for people? Like where do they sit? Where do these policies get you? And it's always, I think it's a fascinating discussion that we don't have with enough young people to really talk about what does it mean to give the government too much power or just the right amount of power? How mm-hmm. much power should human beings have? What are their basic human rights? When a government encroaches on them, what do humans get to do in return? Um, and, and those are questions that are eternal. Yeah. That That is not going away. We, we have to know that for every country we get involved with, that we want to be friends with, for our own country, at mm-hmm. the local, state, and federal level. Like, mm-hmm. How much power are you comfortable giving away? And how much do you want to retain? Mm-hmm. Um, it's important. So this, this, and you can answer this however you want. You say you try to be cognizant and careful to share your beliefs or impose, but you, you mentioned that, you know, you're Baptist or group Baptist. Would you say when you translated the, the Quran that you were, you started to believe in the Quran as well and Islamic, like how, how does that, how do you look at it as more of like just an educational piece of literature and then not kind of let it sink into your spirit and what you do each day? That's a that's a great conversation. That's a great topic. I, I get this a lot. My wife would travel with me a lot, Michelle, when I was going on the road, and she would usually handle the book sales, and I would come sign books afterwards. And she always got this question. They never wanted to ask me, but they'd always ask my wife, so when did he become a Muslim? <laughs> because I had translated the Quran into English, somehow that made me a Muslim. Right. And and I never say when I speak to an audience what my religious beliefs are. I always leave that hanging because that, that I didn't want to influence the questions. I wanted them to not, you know, if, if they thought I was Muslim, that was cool. If they thought I wasn't, that's fine. I didn't want to influence them by saying, no, I'm Baptist. You know, I grew up Baptist. So why would I stop being a Baptist? I 
We're just talking about another religion here. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are Muslims who talk about Baptists. Mm-hmm. Um, so, That'd be a good book to read. <laughs> yeah. Who's written that one? Um, so I think that's a fair question. And there's a great book called Holy Envy. I would urge your listeners to pick it up. Uh, it's written by a lady that uh, taught in the Atlanta area a world religions course, kind of a survey of religions. The book's called Holy Envy um, because of this idea that comes from a, uh, um, a bishop in Stockholm, I believe, who said, you have to have holy envy when you study other religions. Mm-hmm. Your religion is perfect to you. It's what you grew up with. It's what you believe in. It's your path to heaven or whatever you believe is heaven uh, or hell. Some of your listeners say, hey, we don't know where you're going. Um, uh He said, leave room for holy envy, because you, as you study another religion, you might find that they do something better than yours. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian anymore. If you see something that Buddhists do that you go, actually, that's really smart. And I I use the analogy. I think there's there's one of the Hindu sects that every day at their temple, they serve a hot meal to the needy every day, Mm -hmm. every day at this particular temple. They have a hot they have hot food for the needy every single day. And I thought as a Baptist, and we know a lot about food in the Baptist yes, church. Yes. You know, wouldn't that be a great tenant for the Baptist church to have? That every Baptist church, if you're hungry, come by. We will feed you once a day a great meal. Mm. What a great I mean, I wish that that was the rule for the Baptist churches. Because Lord knows we can cook and eat. That's like, true. <laughs> I I think so that's the idea of holy envy, and it really comes out in her book. And I, uh, I think it's a fascinating way to think about studying religions. I, I told when I when people ask me that, you know, well, are you a Muslim now? I, I say no. I'm I'm more of a Baptist. I'm more Christian now. After. I feel stronger about my own faith than I ever did mm-hmm. because I've been comparing religions, yeah, really heavily for five or six years, and this is the one I'm comfortable with. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that people get lost that if you study another religion, you somehow take up their beliefs. Mm-hmm. But I, I think in the end, for me, uh, my my kind, I sign every Quran: education and tolerance. That's kind of my hashtag: education and tolerance. I think the more you know about any other culture in any form, uh, makes you a more tolerant person. You don't you're not out there trying to convert people. You're not out there trying to denigrate people or be mean to them or be violent towards them or discriminate. You just you're more comfortable around different. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you, you hit the nail on the head um, in the sense of, well, you you had a um, an upper hand in a good way. I mean, you had an upper hand while well, you also just served our country, but you were able to immerse yourself in the culture as well to kind of get the perspective of these people's behaviors and their mindsets and how they go about business. So it sparks your interest, but... I mean, I think that's really cool what you said, too. If anything, it gives you more of assurance of your faith and what you believe in because you've been you've had to dissect so many other facets. And and it also gives you such a great um, I forget what verse it is, but I'm horrible at this reference thing. Sorry, Lord. But um, just being able to give a defense of your faith at any given time, um, which I think is important as Christians. I think that it's important as Christians as well to to be aware of what's going on around us. I mean, the world is shifting and moving and there's so much going on right now that if we would just look up from our phones, I'm speaking to myself, for like five seconds, uh, we'd know there's a lot going on. And um, I think 
you're and I see your posts on Facebook and see some of your writings and things like that. And you're always um, you're always pushing the mold to, to try to learn more and educate more people, which I think is just super incredible. So I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing um, just your wealth of knowledge. I could get lost in more and more conversations. This is reminding me of my college days where I'd have a really good professor and I would sit with my mouth wide open, mouth breathing, just lost in the conversation, like just lost in what they're saying. So if there were any times listeners that you were like, is Brooke ever going to speak? It's because my mouth was open and I was trying to process all this as a mouth breather. But anyways, before we get to our write it down, um, I have a few rapid fire questions. Um, just some fun questions I'd like to ask you. Um, somebody who had a lot of time in Florida, would you say you're more of a beach or mountain guy now? Ooh, well, that's a good one. Uh, probably mountain. I had heat exhaustion once in, in the army, and so I like it when it's cooler. <laughs> I can't only imagine. Tennis or golf? Ugh. Oh, SEC football. Okay, okay. Who's your team? I went to Auburn. Oh, okay. There you go. Sorry. Well, you War Eagles. Um, Something like that. We got a few masks. Yeah. Cruise or like a resort, like sandals? Oh, uh, re- Resort. I, I, I'm not getting on a boat. You're you never been on. Have you been on a cruise? You're not a cruise guy. I, I've been on some day cruises, and I, I don't. I don't get the. I don't get it. It's just not your thing. <laughs> no. I see. Seasick. I don't get the other like buying a plane ticket and then buying a resort ticket. It's like you could just all in one be on a cruise, eat, drink, be merry, and nobody bother you. I got to go to those cool resorts with the diplomatic missions where uh, it was all paid for. So Oh, okay. You're bu- <laughs> you're just bougie and, and I'm poor. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, we've gotten to that point in the show where I ask each guest to give the audience something to write down. So, Jason, what is your write it down? Uh, I just threw this out last night or this morning and it was hitting me. I was asked to do some mentoring uh, with Afghan students that are coming to America. And so my write it down would be the world is full of gatekeepers. So be a door opener, kick it down for others. I love that being it's, it goes back to that principle of um, being others minded, which I like that. So Jason Hawk, thank you so much for joining, write it down and sharing your story. Thanks for having me. I loved it. Thank you for listening to the write it down podcast. This podcast is a part of the 1513 network. You can catch a variety of shows on their website, 1513.com. If you enjoy listening to Write It Down, please subscribe, share with your friends, and if there's any ink left in your pen, write a review. For more content, follow the fun on Instagram by following at W-I-D-P-O-D. That spells WIDPOD. Super cool. Stands for Write It Down Podcast, but it's abbreviated to WIDPOD. Anyways, thanks for listening, and we will catch you later.